Hello friends and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem solving, decision making, and team development. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us at thebossbuilders.com. I guess it was about a month or so ago I was reading USA Today, which I typically do every morning, and I came across an interview with an author who wrote a book about thinking, the addiction to thinking. The article was fascinating. I forwarded it to my team. I suggested to Lisa that, hey, maybe we try to see if we can reach out to Nancy Collier, who was the author of the book, and see if she'd be willing to be on the show. Well, I really didn't know whether she'd <laughs> take us up on the offer, but you know what? She did. And we had the most amazing chat just a couple of days ago about this idea of addiction to thinking. Nancy Collier wrote a book. She's written many books, actually. But this one in particular, I think, is relevant to our audience. The title of the book is Can't Stop Thinking, How to Let Go of Anxiety and Free Yourself from Obsessive Rumination. You know, if you are struggling in your personal or professional life, there's a very good chance, just based on what I learned speaking with Nancy a couple of times, that your thinking can actually make things worse. There are better ways to do it without going down the rabbit hole of obsessive rumination. You're going to learn a lot in this chat we had today, so I'm not going to ruin any more of it for you. Let's quit talking about Nancy. Let's let her talk to us. You know what time it is. Let's go ahead, buckle that seatbelt, make sure the personal items under the seat in front of you. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Nancy Collier, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad you could join us. So for the listeners, if you're wondering who is Nancy Collier, she is the author of many books, but the one we want to talk about specifically today is Can't Stop Thinking, How to Let Go of Anxiety and Free Yourself from Obsessive Rumination. And as an HR professional who is striving for recognition and respect, I suspect there's just a few of you out there that sometimes wonder, am I good enough to be here? What do I need to do to get better? And it seems like that thinking process can be one that can be challenging. And so we have an expert with us today and we have some questions for you, Nancy. But before we get into those, I would love it if you could share something about your background. Tell us how you got started and what you're doing today. Sure. Um, well, my background actually is somewhat varied. I started many years ago, um, believe it or not, as a television producer and um, spent my 20s doing that. And I was a 
a very, very serious equestrian. So um, riding on the A circuit for many years and um, I finally transitioned out of that and into, I built a company called The Winning Mind, which was about what makes us win. What creates a mind that, it was always interested in the mind, that can um, overcome obstacles. And so I worked with professionals on that, went back to school in psychology, graduate school, and so on and so on, and then ended up um, actually as a psychotherapist some years later, but um, always with this interest in what is the mind up to. You know, I was raised in a Buddhist home, and um, we tend to look at the mind a little differently than Western homes do, purely uh, Western. And we look at it as a sort of interesting entity, what, what, and, and with a little bit of distance from us, the one who's looking. And so I was always fascinated. Um, by the mind. And then I went back and became an interfaith minister. I did seminary because I've always been fascinated by spirituality, period, and religion. And um, so that's a little bit of my journey. And I am a chronic overthinker. In the midst of all of that, I am an overthinker. So this book particularly came to me one day I was walking in the park and I had, it was a beautiful, beautiful day. Not that I would have known because I was trapped down the rabbit hole in my mind, but um, I was going over and over and over the same problem I was having for the last 10 years in my relationship. I, I have no shame in, in admitting that the length of time I had had that problem, but and I had one of those aha moments where I woke up, I fundamentally woke up and I understood, and it sounds so silly, but I think it's something we really don't get, that no matter how much I thought about this problem, I was not going to figure it out with more thinking about it. That was not actually going to help me. And I got it in that moment. I woke up to the fact that I was creating my own suffering. And so in that moment, and of course, I'd been meditating for years, that moment didn't come spontaneously. It was after years and years of practice. But I went from being identified with the thoughts themselves to being the one who was listening to the thoughts and being hammered by them and being sort of uh, this relentlessness of them coming to my attention. I made the shift and I, and I never really went back. That's how I knew it was a, a profound spiritual change because I stayed aligned with that which was listening to them as opposed to being the thinker. That's a long journey of a lot of years, but it leads us up to this book and why I wrote this book in part was because I saw in my practice and with everybody I know that so much of our suffering comes from our own mind and what we're doing to ourselves with it and what we're believing. So the subtitle talks about obsessive rumination. What's the difference between obsessive rumination and thinking? Because we have to think basically to function, but it sounds like 
the rumination is like super thinking or way too much thinking. How would you define that? Well, it's interesting because when I first brought this book to the publisher and I said, you know, I want to write a book about our addiction to thinking, which I talk about in the book. Everyone said, absolutely not. Where this is not an addiction, thinking, we need thinking, it's the most important thing we do, and so on and so on. We're very frightened of the idea of adjusting our relationship with thinking. Thinking is fine. I'm thinking as I write this, you thought about that question. We need to make grocery lists, vacation plans. But obsessive rumination and overthinking has to do with these repetitive thoughts, these thoughts that we really don't want to keep thinking, but we can't stop thinking. So there's, there's a little bit of an awareness that, oh my God, here I go again with this thought. For some people, for some people, there's no awareness that we're repeating and repeating. But overthinking and obsessive rumination has to do with not being able to decide what we think about, having no choice in that. So left to our default, I guess, we'll just continue to think about a thing until we've driven ourselves crazy or solved it. But we don't solve it. That's, that's the big mystery of why, how is it we keep doing something sometimes for decades? that with this idea that somewhere, if we just keep thinking about it and we're going to turn it around in another way, we're going to think it through in another way, we're going to get to the bottom of it. If I could get the right way of thinking about this, what, I'll be happy? It'll be solved, this one problem that's the problem in my life. I'll be okay if I could get to it. If we still have fundamental faith that the only way to peace is through more thinking about it, we're still stuck. So we have to have that revelation, which I talk about in the book, where we really fall out of love with our thoughts. We, we become um, not only disentangled with them, but we become, we no longer find them to be the answer. We know there's no diamond at the bottom of the rubble of another round of thinking about this. It's not there. It's not the answer. So in the example you had given when you came up with your inspiration, it was something with a relationship. Is that usually what people do the obsessive rumination about? Or are there other kind of typical things that a person just can't seem to shake free of? Well, they tend to fall in a few different categories. One is grievance, right? What, who did what to me that I don't like? Or what situation is happening that I don't like? You know, we go over and over and over what has happened that makes us unhappy. And again, when I work with somebody, I'm always trying to understand what the mind is trying to get. In, in its obsessive thinking, right? So in that case, when we're going over and over something we hate, uh, did you see the way that guy looked at me? Or I can't believe the traffic light is, da, da, da. you know, these minor things that we obsess and obsess about. We're trying in a sense to be heard. We're trying to get some kind of empathy for our experience that we can't find anywhere else. So we're doing it over and over and over. Can you believe that we're, we're making ourselves at the same time, Mac, we're making ourselves right. We're always showing that 
right? I'm right about this. I, I, you know, I matter. I shouldn't have been treated like that. We're reaffirming that. Or for an example, when, when we're going over situations we regret, that's a big one. Why didn't I do it this way? Right? Damn, I wish I had done it that way. What we're really rejecting is we, is we're rejecting this idea of ourselves that, you know, that was the best we could do in that moment. That's what we had in our toolbox. Even if we knew another way, we think we knew another way of doing it and we didn't choose it, it still means that the choice we made that we so regret was the best we had because it's the choice we made. So we can't bear that. So we keep going over the regret. It's almost like to try and make it come out another way. You know, another scenario that people are always, you know, rehashing and rehashing is really situations of pain. If it comes down to it, it's it's what hurts, what hurts us, right? And again, you know, what what we do that for in part is because it feels like if we don't keep bringing up our pain and thinking about it, and if we were to dare to let it go and stop thinking about it, it's almost like it didn't happen or it didn't matter. So we keep bringing it up because it's our only way of saying, right, this, my pain happened and I care about it. We're so identified with it that it's very hard to let it go, which would mean to stop thinking about it. So regret, grievance, pain, these are some of the big ones. We don't go to the unicorns and rainbows generally when we're ruminating. We go to what causes suffering, right? And one of the big reasons is, as we talked about a moment ago, is because we really believe that if we think about it more, we'll make it better. And that's the, that's the fundamental flaw in the system. Often the very thing that makes it feel better is turning our attention back to the present moment and being here, not in the past, not in the other, you know, big topic of worrying, worry thoughts, what will happen, what will happen. Let me prepare for what will happen over and over and over again, because I feel like the more I prepare, then I won't be in danger. Right. But the only thing really that happens when we prepare for a potential catastrophe is we are sure to get to live it once. Probably we're not going to get to live it twice. It probably won't happen, but we ensure that we'll get to live it at least this once in our mind. Right. But the, again, the instinct there, Mac, is to help ourselves to prepare. But you're almost preparing to fail, which would just make your point even stronger that CI was right. You are setting up that situation. But usually what does come down the pipe, even if it's negative, right, is not the negative we prepared for. Because again, you know, you sit with people long enough, what you realize is that we're all living in a kind of fun house of mirrors. Everyone is living in some narrative that they made up based on their conditioning, their thoughts, their memories, their hurts, all of it. But nobody's narrative of reality is the same. Is the same. 
So something happens in real life and then everyone in, that experiences that goes off inside their mind and creates a whole story about what happened. None of them are similar. <laughs> That's what's so bizarre. So in writing these catastrophic future scenarios, we're just, we're just like the directors of a movie, right? This is going to happen, so on and so on. And usually what happens has nothing to do with our narrative. But part of waking up and finding freedom that I talk about in the book is recognizing the narrative writing we're doing. So let's say I have a pain in my foot, right? In, an, in a stand, standard human being, within 30 seconds, that pain in my foot means, and then fill in the blank. Depending on your childhood, it means you're going to be dead within six months. It means that you're a terrible person because you haven't been running. It means that so-and-so hates you because her foot is a different. Who knows? But we're doing that all day long. We're narrating a fictional story, telling ourselves these stories. So when you start to get free from thought and obsessive rumination, it's because you're able to parse what happened from, oh, now I'm story making. I'm using my thoughts to make a line of what makes sense. It's all made up. It's all made up. And, and there, there starts to be a kind of sense of humor about your inner author. And it, it's actually quite incredibly freeing because then all that happened was a pain in your foot. And then you're free to just relate to that, not start calling doctors about the terminal illness that it implies. And so obsessive rumination is this whole cycle we're talking about. It's the narration, it's the repetition, it's the looking for an answer through the thoughts, the imagining, there's a way to do it, to, to mentally muscle your way through this to make it okay. Because then also, the last thing I'll say about that, which is, one of the things we have the hardest time in this culture accepting is, I don't know. Just that's the destination. I don't know how to, let's say the relationship problem, I don't know how to solve it. Mm -hmm. Not right now. We are taught from the moment we can, you know, wobble. That's not okay. We have to know. But when you start to to let I don't know, I don't have the answer, be a place you can rest, a place that you can actually comfortably reside. It's like your whole world changes because then not knowing, okay, that's the answer. I don't know. It may come to me. I know it's not going to come through more thinking. I may discover it. I may not. But that's, that is what I know is that I don't know. And getting, getting a little bit of a more fluid relationship with our own thoughts has a lot to do with being able to rest in, I don't know, has to be an answer. That's my answer. Well, for a lot of our listeners, they're paid to know. Okay, good. They're, they're HR professionals and they'll get a question, hey, if we do this, is this going to be okay? And there's so many variables. So what a senior executive would not want to hear out of their HR person is, I don't know. It would be like, well, you better figure it out quick. 
Right. But could that be something that would start to drive our confidence down if we continually were hammered by that? And maybe it's a, it's a realization that I, I'm not as smart as I think I am. Or could it be as dangerous as I'm, I shouldn't even be here. If they really knew that I didn't know, they'd kick me out of here tomorrow. Could it be that drastic? Well, I think what we do with, if I'm an HR executive and somebody comes to me expecting an answer, you tell me, is it an acceptable answer to say, hey, I don't know the answer to that right in this moment, but I sure will find out. Or That's totally acceptable, okay. I would think, sure. So there's always this, you know, the antidote to the imposter syndrome is to some degree honesty. It sounds counterintuitive, but if I can say, I don't know that yet, but I know where I can go to find out that answer. Suddenly, instead of having to show up as this big shot expert that has all of this knowledge, right? We're letting ourselves be at the table authentically. Because imposter syndrome is all about, you know, pretending we're somebody we're not, right? Or not trusting our own wisdom, not trusting that you know we have the experience we need but when we're honest and we just say what we know and what we're willing to do about that then we are there as who we are we're authentic as long as we're authentic we're not playing any role so how does a person who has played the role or played the game and has this moment of wow i've been fooling everybody including myself how do you come back from something like that, from being the quasi know-it-all to down deep inside, I really didn't know much and I've been fooling everybody. Is there a process that we can bring ourselves back from that? Because it goes from inauthenticity to authenticity, which I would imagine is healthier for ourselves. It is. Is there a way we can break through that or? It is. It is a healthier place for sure. The, the first step really in all of this is that we have to be on our own side, right? So what that means is that we, we start spending some time with, it's been really hard to pretend all these years. It's been hard, right? We, we have some compassion for our own experience as a faker. Mm. Now we're joining our side, right? We get very real with ourselves and how hard and what the cost of that has been, right? When we feel that very deeply, we're changed. We're already changed. We can't go back to being, to pretending, right? And with that, we have to develop this very tricky uh, quality of forgiveness for ourselves. And by that, I mean, if we've been faking, we have to understand how dangerous and threatening it must have been to us to imagine being vulnerable or not knowing. We have to get on our own side and understand why did we feel we had to fake it, right? And what's changed now that we feel that we can show up as who we are and that will have to be enough, right? It's a process of really joining, joining with yourself. And so we, we always take our own side, you know, 
it's not about blaming and shaming ourselves or pretending we knew more than we did. It's about empathizing for how, how impossible it would have been to not know and how shameful that would have felt, a, a non-option. But then also that at some point the suffering of pretending is too much. So we do all of that, right? And that starts to give us, again, a seat at the table for who we really are, which is just living a totally different life. Because, you know, we, we are so identified with these roles of ourselves and these ideas about ourselves. And so often they're really not in sync with how we actually feel about ourselves, right? So we believe the narration about ourselves, right? We believe what we've told ourselves about ourselves and then we spend our lives trying to get other people to see us that way. But, but most of that is, is, a, is um, so ephemeral, it's not even real. The work is in getting in touch with your own experience of yourself, not as defined by your role, not as defined by anybody else. And so the thoughts, right, the thoughts keep the system going of what does everybody think about me? Do they think I'm great? Do they think I'm smart? Do they think we got to get under that to what, what do I feel enough? That's the important question. Do I feel weak in certain areas? Do I feel trepidation? Then we're in the interesting question. But that's just the entry into it. I mean, it seems like this will be because what I know of addiction, which isn't a whole lot, is that it's not something that you can really cure, you know, in a short amount of time. It's almost a lifelong struggle. So the day we have this, I guess, this moment of awareness, then I would I don't know, but I would imagine that's the hard work that comes after that, because now are you going to have to constantly being aware of like this half of my mind goes down the old path of I'm not good enough. I'm not the right person. And then the right path is that, you know, be comfortable in your lack of ability to come up with an answer. I mean, it seems like this going to be a radical shift. Is that the same thing that happens with addiction to substance? Well, what happens, you know, what happens when we make that fundamental shift that we're no longer aligned with the one yelling at us, no longer aligned with the one that's telling us, you got to be this, you got to be this. And again, we're the one listening to it, right? Once we've made that fundamental shift, and it's almost like our heart has broken for ourselves for having to have listened to this for so many years and believed it. Because with our thoughts, that's the thing. We don't just think they're interesting and fabulous and brilliant. We think they're the truth. But when we step outside of that, we, because we have a thought, we get it. It's not necessarily true. We get it that we don't have to believe it. And we don't even have to think about it because we have a thought. So once we've made that fundamental shift, we do have to we do have to practice that muscle of awareness of watching the thoughts of being the witness we have to always be mindful of what what ticker tape is coming down the pike at us right like the addict has to listen to those thoughts that tell the addict it doesn't have an addiction right in addiction 
have a mind that tells you there's nothing wrong with you. The answer is alcohol or the answer is drugs. Similarly, the addicted mind tells us there's nothing wrong with thought. If we just keep thinking about this, we're going to actually get to the problem. We're going to figure it out. It's the same as have a drink, right? So what we do have to be mindful and keep practicing is to keep our feet firmly aligned in and as the awareness that is aware of the thoughts so that we don't re-identify and become the thoughts again. We have to work at keeping our witness seat. So we hear the thoughts that are coming. We question, do we believe that? Does that actually match with experience? What is the story about my life I'm telling myself right now? That's happening because nobody, nobody thinks I'm worth anything made up. That's a completely made up story. We start to, we can hear the thoughts coming down the pipe, question them, and then amazingly enough, turn away from them, right? Because, you know, to say a little more about that, this culture to some degree is built on that Descartes line, you know, I think therefore I am. Mm -hmm. So for us, thinking and being are one thing. Who would, we wouldn't exist if we're not thinking. But what starts to happen in this process where you're questioning your thoughts, you're hearing them, you're the witness, is that you realize that you still exist even when you're not thinking, that you're not actually made of your thoughts. That to some degree, I think therefore I am is false. It's actually false because I can hear my thoughts. I can even have gaps between my thoughts. I still exist. But what, what gets tricky and existential about it is that we feel ourselves alive we feel ourselves as oh i'm here when i'm thinking right you feel mac is there i feel nancy's here i'm thinking right but when we start to be able to to ride that bicycle that is to experience ourselves in a different way such that we don't need to be thinking to know we're here then we're then we're really we're playing in a, in a more exciting kind of existence well, this doesn't sound like something that I can just snap my fingers and I'm suddenly going to be now the third person watching the brain and the thinking go on because I'm different. What is a good process to help us move there? I think, I mean, from today, what I gather is you have to separate them. And I think I know how we separate them. But the question is, how long does it take? Do we need an accountability partner like you might with another addiction? Right. Is there something that we can start doing besides just saying, I'm going to stop the right. excessive rumination? Well, one thing I want to just make sure that your, your people understand is, you know, self-help teaches us that if we just have the right positive, if we replace our negative thoughts with positive thoughts, right, we'll be fine. But I'm here today to see that doesn't work. Because when, when the going really gets tough, uh, we, we default back to our negative place. And neurologically, there are many reasons for that. Neuro, um, neurologically, negative thoughts are stickier than positive thoughts. We know that from a lot of research. 
they're harder to disengage with. So self-help sells us the idea that the contents of our thoughts are what determine our happiness. So when a negative thought comes up, we're very, very scared. We're very scared because we can't be happy and have that negative thought coming down the pike. It's great to have positive thoughts. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm suggesting, before I give you some just few exercises, that what if your happiness didn't depend at all on the contents of your thought? Then it's not, it's, it's not so scary if a random intrusive thought comes in because positive or negative, you're not your thought. So you, you don't have to be so razor thin, you know, dependent upon, was it a good thought? Did I have the right thought? And, and that's very freeing to, when we get that, that it's not about you, you know, better controlling the content of your thoughts. Happiness is not based on that. It's actually being neither your positive nor your negative thoughts. You're the space or the witness within which they're appearing, right? You're the one listening. That's the premise. So one thing we, we want to do as we start this process, and 100% this does not take years to happen. It does not take years. This can happen in a day if we really want it to happen. We have to recognize what our thoughts have been doing to us. Number one, what it's been like to live with this mind telling us over and over what it tells us or going over and over down the same rabbit holes. We have to, the first thing is align ourselves with the one that has had to live with this mind. That's number one. Number two, it is important to start some kind of awareness practice. Meditation is really wonderful for this, where five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, if you can eke it out, you just sit quietly and see what your mind is up to. That's it. That's the whole game. You can follow your breath. And then as the thoughts come in, notice the thoughts. Oh, a worry thought. Oh, you know, a self-critical thought. Oh, a thought about what I don't like. We're just turning the lens on what is happening in our mind. We do need to practice that in order to um, develop this witness skill where we're not our thoughts. And so those are, those are absolutely critical elements. And also, you know, we do need to keep doing this. So at any point during the day, we can, we're riding in the car, whatever it might be, just take a moment to stop and drop. We stop what we're thinking and we drop our attention down into our body. Because when we're busy thinking, we're not where we are. You know, 50% of the time we are lost in thought. So we essentially miss our life, half of our life. We miss. We're not in it. So all throughout the day, take mindful moments where you unstick from the narration going on in your mind. You know, we're always talking to ourselves all day long. Oh, look what I just did. Oh, I like the way he was nice to me. Oh, look, it looks like I need to get a raise or whatever it is we're talking to ourselves about and bring your attention down into your body and just feel the presence of your body. Take one slow, deep, conscious breath 
And amazingly, the body is this portal. It's like a direct flight into now. As soon as we're in our body, we are in the present moment. The body can't be anywhere else. It's mm -hmm. just here. So that move into the body from the head down, let your attention drop below your neck, right? That is the one single action that takes us out of obsessive rumination right there. Leave the thoughts, even in the thick of it, when you think you got the angle, that's the moment you got to do it and drop your attention down into your belly, down into whatever your hands, your feet, feel your body from the inside out. Take a single breath. You've left the thoughts. You've practiced this thing we're going to get really good at, which is being able to unstick from thought. The thought will beckon you. It will beckon you. It will say, come, come to me, come to me. I have the answer to all your problems. And you're going to stay right here in the present moment and decline its invitation. That's the process. The suffering it causes a meditation practice, really pretty necessary. And then all throughout the day, from the head, drop, stop and drop, down into the present moment and the portal of the body. Would that ever get to the point where it would be so automatic that would almost be your default versus the, just it seems like the magnet that pulls you into obsessive rumination? Could it be that clear to where you don't, ever get tempted to go back to the old way? Well, ooh, you had me until never tempted. Ah. Um, it absolutely becomes your default. Okay. And when it becomes your default, it is such a better life. I, I speak from both sides of, of uh, the rumination fence here. Um, it's not that the, th the, the thoughts don't continue to beckon. Right. Because again, you know, the mind believes that if it's not got a seat at the table and if we're not, in, you know, obsessing and ruminating and thinking and using it, it thinks we're going to die. It thinks that we can't exist without it. So its intentions are, are good. It's just very primitive. It's very primitive. So it keeps sending us come, come, come. Right. And it gets so much easier to say, yeah, I've heard that thought, you know, 412,000 times before and rethinking it doesn't really interest me. And then we can go about our way. What does happen though over time, and I again speak as somebody who has had a meditation practice for a long time, is you start to notice longer and longer gaps between thoughts where it feels profoundly peaceful because what a lot of people come to me about is a kind of they're burnt out not just from life they're burnt out from their own thinking they're burnt out from living inside their own mind and so when you start practicing the stopping and dropping you start practicing taking the witness seat inside your own consciousness is it gets so much quieter, right? So even if I'm just sitting on the train and I turn the lens on my own mind and I listen into, wow, 
what's my mind up to right now? It's going over that dinner conversation with my mom for the 400th time and saying how I can't believe she said that. And I'm saying that again and again. Wow, look at that. What, what am I really trying to get through that? When we start doing that almost by habit, it becomes our habit to look rather than be so identified with the content. It's, it's like the whole burnout list, the whole burnout, because we're in the seat of the witness with compassion, right? And we're not looking to judge, oh my God, I can't believe you're, you're doing this again. And it's not about blaming our mind for what it's up to. It's just, wow, look at the nature of this human consciousness. It's really a reason why they call it, you know, a drunken monkey mind. <laughs> that's what it is. So, so it's, I'm selling to some degree a different way of life here, really radically different. So those gaps where we have a real refuge of peace, it's worth 10,000 vacations to Maui. You know, you can go to Maui, but you're bringing this mind with you that won't stop. I'm talking about stopping at a much deeper level. Wow, that's profound. Well, I feel like my brain just got run through the car wash over this past 30 minutes. This has been fascinating. And if you are listening to this today, I suspect that it's been hard because you've probably been going back to your brain, working overtime, doing the obsessive rumination. But uh, I am convinced this is a much better way to go. Nancy, for someone who's listening today that says, I'm not sure I can do it on my own. Are you available to work with folks? And secondarily, you obviously have this book and many others and one on the way. How would a listener reach out to you? How can we find you? How can we find your books? Sure. And absolutely, I can work with people individually and really bring this to boots on the ground. What does this look like? Because it, it's not complicated. It is not complicated. And anyone, Buddhist or any anyone can do this um so yes the best way to reach me is through my website which is nancycollier.com and it's one l uh c-o-l-i-e-r and the book is can't stop thinking which has enormous amount of exercises in it that really break it down to very bite-sized chunks uh that we can practice and i I do know that if we read the book all the way through and do the exercises, we will come out changed 100%. And I'm very happy to handhold uh, through the process. So nancycollier.com is the best way. And Amazon, of course, for the book or anywhere that your books are sold. Wonderful. Well, Nancy, thank you for taking some time this afternoon to chat with us. We're grateful for you sharing the lessons that you've learned and have mastered now. And I think all of us can certainly benefit. So thank you. You're so welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.